You're listening to All Things From My Brain, the new podcast from The New Universe. For more information about the author, or to check out show notes and links, or to send us feedback, please visit the blog.thenewuniverse.com. Hello again, and welcome to episode four of the All Things From My Brain podcast. I am Patrick Hester, author, blogger, functional nerd, tech junkie, gamer, and creator of the internal combustion engine. Uh, okay, I, 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 I can't back that last one up. I, I don't have any you know real sort of proof on that. <clears throat> but the rest of it applies, I, I promise. I want to thank you for once again joining me. I do appreciate it. All Things From My Brain is both the podcast and the blog and uh, are about whatever happens to be on my mind. The things that interested and distracted me, you know, each and every week. Building up to the uh, the recording of this, blog, uh, this podcast. So I do offer a little bit more structure for those of you who prefer it. Those who have one of those magnetic whiteboards, you know, up on your refrigerator, covered in all your appointments for the month, so you can keep track of everything, and maybe even have things, you know, in different colored pens, so that you can categorize stuff. Well, you can think of this as a category list, or a word cloud, you know, if you if you prefer that term. Uh, but in this podcast, I will cover such diverse and varied topics as science fiction, sci-fi, and fantasy stuff that can be anything um, technology web life video games including the world of warcraft which i tend to play from time to time not as much as i used to uh, books novels movies television music and my own adventures and trying to get my own original science fiction and fantasy works published currently that uh, that would be my novel um, tentatively called sam kane <clears throat> i say tentatively because well i don't say tentatively very well but uh, I say that because I've been uh, toying with the, the, the idea of a different name for it. I, I'm not sure yet. Um, more on that probably in a completely different podcast. But for now, I invite you to kick back. Um, for the next hour or so, uh, I'm feeling verbose today, sipping your favorite beverage of choice. I always recommend Southern Style Sweet Tea uh, or Mountain Dew if, if, you know, if, you, if you're on the, the carbonated, caffeinated kick. Uh, but not the game fuel stuff. That that ugh, ugh. that stuff is nasty. It, it's like pure sugar in a can. You take a sip and you can feel your teeth eroding away. It, um, so not that stuff. Uh, but uh, grab your favorite snack or munchable item and, and join me on this journey into the things that caught my eye and made me think this past week. Sometimes it'll be longer, like today. Uh, sometimes it'll be shorter. It all depends on what may have distracted me and what I feel like talking about. Um, usually I don't even know how long these things are going to be, but, you know, I've got a pretty good idea today, so, um, it's going to be a little bit longer. First up, this week, we're going to talk about technology. This week saw the first anniversary of Apple's App Store. Apple celebrated the anniversary by putting up a special section showing, you know, all their favorite apps. But no special pricing, at least that I could see. It looked like just a normal pricing, um, just to made, made, made it look pretty. After one year, the App Store now has over 56,000 apps. 
that is just phenomenal. Um, that, that really surprised me. I didn't realize they had that many. Um, congrats to the App Store. And uh, that is, is really cool. And, and I actually have a couple of iPhone apps I you know um, that I want to talk about this week. So um, it makes a nice segue you know, right into those. I've, I've mentioned before that I, I like Pandora, um, which is the internet radio. I even have Pandora, uh, the app for my iPhone. Well, this week I came across a couple of other internet radio apps that tap into public radio, and so that kind of interested me, and I decided to share. The first app is uh, aptly named Public Radio, and comes to us from Intersect World. This is billed as a radio stream aggregator, kind of cool, um, but that's just fancy talk for public radio. It does cost two dollars, but the, for those two dollars, you can get uh, you get basically an alphabetical listing of all the stations by their call letters, which is easy. I mean, you can scroll through them and, and find the stations that you want. You can also add your own streams, which is really cool. You know, so if something isn't listed, um, you can put that that stream in. Um, if you're missing your old public radio station, it's a, it's a pretty decent app, you know, and it's a it's a good way to get that stream into the palm of your hands. So if your alma mater, if your alma mater has a uh, you know, like a college radio station, <clears throat> you can grab that stream and put it on there, you know, mess around with it. But if you don't want to pay $2, there is also um, Public Radio Tuner, which is absolutely free. You can search by category on this one, by city or station, which is, you know, kind of handy. I, I like the search feature. I downloaded this one um, because it was free and I've been using it. And, and I mean, so far, so good. The quality is kind of good. sounds good. Um, I haven't dropped a lot. It has a, a really nice local feature, so it'll use the GPS stuff on your phone to show you the channels near you rather than you having to scroll through the station listings to find you know stuff that's, that's close by. I used um, the search feature myself because I was looking for blue stations, of course, <clears throat> and I came across 10 or 12 different ones, uh, which in itself is cool. I'm always happy to see so many different you know blue stations, and they all did say blues, um, not just jazz, so... It doesn't have the ability to add a feed like public radio, but um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that is something that you absolutely have to have. You know what I mean? I, I suppose being able to add a feed means that potentially you could add any feed from any streaming station. I, I probably should test that. I don't know. Um, if you could do that, that's kind of you know really, really cool. Because um, then you could get any internet radio that you want it in the palm of your hand. Hmm. That, uh, that makes me kind of want to try that out now. The, uh, the iPhone app that's taking up most of my time right now uh, is Let's Golf. Yep, golf. I, I can't believe it either. I, I'm not a golf game player, and yet I find myself really enjoying this golf game. Uh, it's a nice little distraction, especially when your day goes to crap and you, you need a break. You know, you just kind of need to walk away for a second. It doesn't take too much brain energy, which is good, um, and it's just plain fun. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've been really, really, really surprised how how fun this little golf game is. I picked it up when it was on sale, um, ninety nine cents. No clue if it's still at that price or not. It's probably back up to two ninety nine or something like that. Graphics are really good. Controls are simple. Uh, it just reinforces in my mind how powerful the iPhone platform is for games. You know, I, I really expect them to make a decent effort in that arena, and I think they, they've already, you know, surpassed what anybody thought they were going to be able to do as far as games go. 
You know, heck, if I if I could create an, an iPhone app right now, it, it would be a side scroller game. I think that side scroller games are perfect on the iPhone. You know, something like Contra. I don't know if you remember Contra. I think it was a Konami game. Um, is anyone out there, you know, creating Contra for the iPhone yet? Come on, people, get get on it. Um, I, I think that'd be a perfect game for the iPhone. And that reminds me, since we're talking about classic games, Dig Dug is now on the iPhone. I have uh, I have very fond memories of playing Dig Dug. I, I used to go down to the Seven Eleven down the street in my house, uh, from my house in Fresno, and uh, play Dig Dug. Well, Dig Dug, Burger Time, Pac Man, Centipede. Uh, I remember track and field uh, with the ball. Um, we used to just wail on that thing to get those people running fast enough and then get them to jump. Anyway. Um, Tron, you know, all of these games made stops at that old 7-Eleven, and I dumped plenty of quarters into them uh, when they showed up. Yes, kids, we used to leave our homes to play video games. Back in the day, before cars, and before those aeroplane things in the sky. Kidding. In this case, uh, Nameco has brought Dig Dug in, and it's called Dig Dug Remix. The game features both a classic version and a new version. It's not cheap, though. They, they have a $6 price tag on the dang thing. Luckily, you know, and, and, you know, this is the smart thing to do, and they all do this. There is a free version called Dig Dug Remix Lite, and uh, that's what I downloaded to mess around with because I didn't feel like paying 6 bucks for the dang thing. Um, I like the old game better than the new version. That could just be the 8-bit gamer in me, you know, coming out and feeling nostalgic. I don't know. But the new version, it didn't seem as fun. You know, sure, they showed him, you know, a, a, a better digging animation. Woohoo, who cares? Um, but the old game just seemed a lot more fun to play, so... Having said that, though, the controls really do suck. I I have tried playing some of these retro game imports into the iPhone before, uh, like Pac-Man is a good example, and they give you a little D-pad controller that they put in the corner, and it just absolutely sucks. And the flick method is no better, which is you can just flick your finger on the screen. Um, neither one of those work very well for these kinds of games. It makes it really, really difficult to maneuver, I wish they could come up with a better system because I think, uh, you know, these games are ready to go, really, for iPhone. They can port over, I think, fairly easily. Um, but when the controls suck like this, it, it just destroys the whole experience. So, um, yeah. And, 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 you know, other than that, the game, it, it took me back quite a ways uh, and made me smile, which is really cool and fun, so... You know, they get they get points for that. Um, check it out uh, if you have an iPhone or an iTouch. Um, check out the light version, though. I wouldn't pay 6 bucks not with those controls. Um, so, check out the light version for free. In other technology news this week, Google Earth just might be bringing us detailed maps of the moon. I have no idea how they're going to get that car up there for the street view portion though. That's going to cost. CNET is reporting that Google has announced plans to hold a press conference on July 20th to discuss a very special addition to Google Earth. 
That's in quotes. But they aren't saying much more about it. No details as to what the announcement might be. Clever people have noticed, however, that July 20th is the 40th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Does this mean that new, detailed maps of the moon are coming to Google Earth? I hope so. Uh, I think this is an amazing story. If it's true, you know, we need to build some excitement about space again. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I'll continue saying it. I think we've just sort of drifted the past 30 years when it comes to our space program. We should, you know, be further along than we are. We should be pushing the boundaries and not just, you know, sticking with the status quo. This, you know, this is a pet peeve of mine. It's really, really frustrating. Um, anything that can jumpstart us in the space program, I, I think, is a worthwhile endeavor. Um, so... If Google Earth adding detailed images of the moon is what it takes to get people excited about space travel again, then more power to them. Let's do it. You know, let's let's get those images out there. Um, this country wrote the book on space exploration. It's, you know, um, that's not arrogance. You know, it's just, we did. And, uh, and now I think it's time that uh, we write the sequel. And if we're not pushing on this, you know, other people are going to do that and we're going to get left behind, so come on let's do this thing, people also in Google News they have decided to remove the beta tag from several of their projects, which is a big deal you know, uh, it, I think it's been um, a long time coming um, just about everything except search itself in Google Labs still has the beta tag on it. Um, Gmail, Google Calendar, Google Talk, and Google Docs are all going to drop the word beta because they've decided they're ready for prime time. Since it's been about five years, has it been five years? I guess it has. Five years of beta on these projects. Um, it's more than past time that they become official releases, really. Have you ever seen any other company keep their stuff in beta for five years? My God. Uh, I use or have used all of the aforementioned Google products from their app suite and salute them, finally taking that next step. Um, now, you know, a little caution here. Uh, me being me, I'm wondering if part of this isn't because of, of Microsoft Office 2010. With the launch of uh, 2010, uh, Microsoft is advertising that it's going to be a consistent Office experience. And that it's going to you know, take you across PCs, mobile devices, and browsers. Uh, part of the new application includes web light versions of Word, Excel, and PowerPoint designed to run inside a browser. Probably only Internet Explorer. And you'll have to have ActiveX turned on. But still, um, they're definitely going after that little niche market that, that Google Apps has now created um, on the web. So if Google really wants to position themselves as a viable alternative to businesses, it's, you know, they're going to have to take that beta tag off. So, you know, it makes sense. Um, I, I think, I think there's a lot of IT people out there who, they don't like beta. <laughs> they, uh, you know, they see that beta tag on there and they're like, eh, I think I'll wait until they get all the bugs worked out. So, I'm sure that um, that this is sort of their answer to, to what Microsoft is trying to do, which is kind of funny because Microsoft is doing something that's they're trying to answer what Google's trying to do. So, um, 
Office 2010, uh, their, their beta is supposed to be launching next week at the Worldwide Partners Conference in New Orleans. So I'm, I'm sure we're probably going to see more details um, coming up on the web here in the next few weeks. Um, and then I'm not, I'm not sure how long it'll be before uh, Office 2010 goes into open beta. Maybe this is open beta. Who knows? Um, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see those two products and how they move forward. So, you know... Good on Google. I'm glad to see that 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 uh, they're taking off those beta tags finally. <clears throat> it's only been, like I said, five years. So, um, lastly, in tech news this week, fascinating, fascinating, fascinating article in PC World. Um, is Facebook past its prime? Honestly, I don't use Facebook as much um, as I used to, and and even when I did use it, I. I still didn't use it as much as a lot of people. And I think it's a great tool for kind of reconnecting, which is one of the things that they're going to talk about here in just a second. Um, but after that, it just becomes this this complicated mess full of stupid memes and, and way too much spam crap, you know. Um, and it looks like PC World, uh, or at least this author, uh, tends to agree with that. This is written by Hillary Rhodes, and the article asks, Is Facebook on its last legs? We hope not, but various irritations associated with the site could contribute to its eventual demise. I'm going to go through these <clears throat> one by one because I, I do think it is um, very interesting. So um, here's what they list as reasons why Facebook might be losing you know, its momentum. Number one. Facebook veterans are defecting to Twitter. She writes, Two or three status updates a day is the maximum before you start looking like a loser on Facebook, whereas on Twitter, you're not. Hey. Um, okay, so I make no effort to hide the fact that I use Twitter a lot. Twitter.com slash ATFMB. I think it is the absolute best communication method to come along in a long time. I'm even leaning towards the concept that I think it's replaced Instant Messenger. Um, she points out in her article that there is a difference of perspective um, between Facebook and Twitter, which is, again, very fascinating. Um, according to her, on Facebook, you are perceived to be sitting at home on your computer with nothing better to do than to update your status. Whereas with Twitter, the impression is that you are mobile that you're out and about doing stuff and tweeting about the important things that happen to you. That that Those are two very, very different perceptions about something that is essentially the same thing when you're updating your status. You know what I mean? It's, it's very curious, and, 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 and it's a fascinating distinction, and one that I hadn't considered before. You know, my problems with Facebook have always been with the site itself, you know, and the kind of the technology and the, the utter inability to keep up with all the updates. It only takes a short time for someone doing a series of memes on their wall, you know, before your wall is full of crap that you can't really, you know, get through or you don't want to look through. And, you know, ugh. I hadn't considered the idea that you, you really do have to be sitting at home doing that stuff, you know, the, the memes, the quizzes, you know, all of that crap that just makes Facebook so annoying. Um, you, you can't really do those on uh, your phone 
on your mobile device. You can't take any of that stuff. So you'd have to be in front of your computer to do that. So it makes it kind of interesting that, that she's saying, you know, there's there's a definite difference there. Um, so I think she's on to something. I'm, I'm going to continue on. Number two, people who actually have lives don't use Facebook. Ouch. Wow. Uh, okay. Again, quoting her, there's a growing sense among Facebook users that the amount of time a person spends on Facebook may be inversely proportionate to how much is going on in the person's offline life. Perhaps unfairly, you may get the impression that only bored and boring people have time to tell their friends that they love the new pita bread at Trader Joe's. Well, um, Hillary, why don't you tell us what you really think? You know, don't hold anything back. Um... I don't know what to make about this part. So I guess what she's saying is if you if you have a life, really you're too busy to be on Facebook. And if you don't have a life, you have uh, plenty of time. Therefore, you're doing all sorts of status updates and you're boring all your friends to death with the minutia of your daily life. Which is just an ouch. And what do you think? I, I've, I, I've never thought of it like that. I think that's kind of harsh. Um... So I don't know what to make of number two. I'm going to move on to number three. In the real world, people often have good reasons for losing touch with old friends. And I'm quoting, For so long, the thrill of Facebook was about reconnecting with people you thought you'd never see again. But now veteran Facebookers find themselves at an impasse. There's nobody left. Having reestablished ties with a few hundred friends from your past, you may be racking your brain for additional lost acquaintances to invite. Meanwhile, as you redis- as your rediscovered friends update you with their everyday goings-on, they offer you multiple opportunities to recall the reasons you lost contact with them in the first place. Again, ouch. She really isn't pulling any punches. Um, the fun of Facebook for me in the beginning, and I am saying in the beginning, was those old friends and reconnecting with them. And many of them have showed up, and I've even had, you know, some fun. So, occasionally I get people who, you know, say they want to be my friend, and I have absolutely no idea who they are. Um, And then I have to look, you know, and I'll look at what part of their profile I can see, you know, if there's any photos. And um, if it all comes back to me, great. If it doesn't, mm, you know, it can be fun. Um, you, know, you get that little bit of a nostalgia. Uh, a lot of my family are now on Facebook, which is odd, um, but fun. And we're usually, well, we're, we're probably more up to date now on Facebook um, with each other than we have ever been in the past, you know, just by traditional communication means, I guess. Because we're kind of spread out a little bit across the country. Facebook is free and it's relatively easy to use, so just about everybody in the family is on there these days. You know, they're posting updates, they're pushing photos, and, and people are commenting, and you know, they're 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 having a good time. As for the bit about reconnecting with old friends, only to realize that you know why you lost touch with them in the first place. I I guess my advice would be don't don't friend those people in the first place. I I mean seriously, you know why. You and such and such fell out so long ago. And you know in your heart that whatever it was probably isn't gone. It's still there, even after all this time. 
So I just suggest you don't friend them when they pop up and say, hey, can we be friends on Facebook? Um, I get all sorts of suggestions from the, the people who are my Facebook friends saying, you know, hey, I know such and such. You need to put them on, you know, that kind of crap. And I, I always look at everything before I accept anybody. And when I come across that person who really annoyed me and I know that they're just going to annoy me again, um, I just don't friend them. I just ignore the, the invite. It's not that complicated. And I think it'll, it'll save you drama in the long run. Um, am I running out of people to friend? Probably. But I don't use the dang thing enough to care, you know. So I don't know what else to say there. Um, continuing on to number four. Having too many friends takes the edge off of Facebook postings. Um, still quoting, the, the downside of racking up so many friends on Facebook is that it's no longer safe to speak honestly about your thoughts and feelings. I hate my job used to be a safe thing to post, but now you're friends with your boss or your colleagues. Yeah, um, this, this is absolutely true. You have to be careful what you say. And it's not even, um, you know, if you do have those people on your friends list. You just have to be careful what you say. As social media and social networking sites have grown in popularity, the odds that the people that you work with are going to end up on your friends list has gone up staggeringly high. Not to mention that a lot of companies are now, you know, actively searching these sites and looking stuff up when they're looking at a prospective employee. You know, they want to know the kind of employee that they're going to get. Um, I... I think I talked about, I don't remember, in, in a past episode, there was a, uh, there was a story not too long ago about, I, I believe it was a local government. It was a city or something, um, or public works. I, I really can't recall. But they were requiring their prospective employees to provide them with all the social sites they belong to and to fork over their usernames and passwords. That's right. They, they wanted not only the sites that they belonged to, they wanted the usernames and passwords so they could go in and take a look at what those people had said and posted on those social networking sites. Um, talk about it. Just a huge, huge invasion of privacy. Uh, public outcry caused them to reverse that completely and stop, the, you know, stop that um, practice outright. But still, you know, it happened, which means other people are going to do it too, eventually. Um, there have also been plenty of stories about people losing their jobs or getting into trouble because of public criticisms, ah, public criticisms, as I become tongue-tied, of their employers, uh, of the companies that they work for, you know, um, on these social sites. It's happening. It's out there, people. So if you are thinking that Facebook is a place where you can go and bitch about your boss, you are sadly mistaken. It's not. Don't do it. Uh, she also puts on here, reinventing, reinventing yourself is hard with a wall full of history mem memorializing your past. This is too true. If you have a Facebook page and lots of friends, you've made all sorts of comments and posts and are you know in photos, you're tagged. Who knows what else is out there? Um, but it is out there, and that's the point. So you have to be aware of that now more than ever. So, you know, your online presence really important. And I, I almost think that you need to, um, you, you need to be as aware of your online presence as you are of your credit rating anymore, which is kind of scary. But 
I, I, that's where we are now, so keep that in mind. <clears throat> Continuing on to, to the last piece, number five. After that 25 things note, there's not much left to say. First, you filled out a long list of interests, hobbies, favorite movies, books, and music. Posted an album after album of the hottest pictures of yourself. And wrote endless updates about what you were up to. Then, a few months ago, the 25 things note burst into the Facebook scene, inviting you to achieve new levels of narcissism by laboring over a creative autobiographical fact sheet and posting it to your profile. Responding to that challenge, you were more candid, literary, and elaborate than ever before. But now, there's nowhere to go but down. Also true. <clears throat> um, I, I agree with that. I, I don't think there's anyone out there on Facebook who hasn't done the 25 things about me note. Um, after that, <laughs> all that's really left are the, you know, how smart are you, the IQ quizzes, uh, the which Firefly crew member are you? <clears throat> I'm Mao, by the way. And water gun fights, um, tossing sheep at each other, uh, virtual pets. There, there's a slew of these just uh, horrible little applications that are abso absolutely, you know, inconsequential. They're all memes, and uh, they're just uh, nauseating fodder that no one actually cares about. Seriously. Uh, I get tons of requests to take these tw these different quizzes and such and such did this and, you know, challenges you to beat their score. I, I just ignore them all now. Um, it's very, very rare that any of them will, will pique my curiosity and, and I'll try one. Um, and even when I do and it comes to the part where it says, you know, publish your results to the, your profile, I never do it. Um, I just skip that part, so. Okay. What does all this mean? Is Facebook really past its prime? Yes and no. I think like most things, it has it has good and bad points. There's a lot of clutter. The, the apps, the quizzes, the memes, all of that is just so much garbage. Status updates, photos, the ability really to connect with people um, that you haven't seen in a while, that is all still viable. But I don't think that they're doing it well anymore. Twitter is doing it better. It's faster, it's sleeker, it's cleaner. I joined Twitter and I have not looked back. You will you'll find more information on my Twitter feed than you will ever find on Facebook. Twitter.com slash ATFMB. And, and that's a conscious decision on my part. Uh, with Twitter, I, I have not only found people that I already knew, just like you can do with Facebook... But I found a slew of new and interesting people that I've connected with that Facebook doesn't really make easy to do. You know, you have to know someone who knows someone kind of thing on Facebook, which is not true on Twitter, you know. You can just follow a trend or, or, or you know, look at the public timeline and find interesting people or search for a word, you know, a keyword. So will Facebook become irrelevant? Yes. I think they will if they don't get their act together and, and kind of clean up the mess. Um, they need to clean up their interface. They need to present a better experience. I, I know that they've been trying to do that lately, and I think they've failed horribly. But if they could do that, they really could survive. As it stands right now, I think people are going to continue to flock to Twitter, and they're going to leave Facebook behind. That's just my opinion. So, so there.
Valve. Okay, couple of things in game news this week, and both are tied to Blizzard. No surprise there. I tend to check out what Blizzard's up to. First up, fans of StarCraft II may have to wait a little bit longer to get the application, to get the game. Speaking to the Wall Street Journal, Arvind Batia, and I'm probably butchering the poor person's name, who is an analyst for Stern McGee, said that it's likely StarCraft II Wings of Liberty will be moved to 2010 to make room for the November release of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. StarCraft II has been slated for an October launch, and Blizzard has said that it would be released this year, no matter what. But uh, now they're Activision Blizzard, so who knows um, who wears the pants in that family. Uh, the two games are not similar at all. One is, you know, real-time strategy, and the other is a first-person shooter. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why this guy thinks that they couldn't be released at the same time. I, I wouldn't think that they would compete against each other. Um, I, I, it's kind of like two different markets there. But uh, who the heck am I? I could be completely horribly wrong. Maybe someone somewhere did a study or something that decided that. Um, they would, in fact, compete, and they don't want people to have to choose which game to spend their 60 bucks on, so it's better to space them apart. And then, I also don't know, you know, why they would put um, the Call of Duty above StarCraft. I don't know. It seems like people have been waiting a really, 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 really long time for the sequel to StarCraft. So I would think that they would want to get that out as soon as possible. Hmm. Um, as for myself, I probably won't buy either game, so it doesn't really matter to me. Um, but I know that uh, you know some of my listeners are, are hardcore Blizzard fans, and that you're really looking forward to StarCraft too. So I figured I better um, put that out there and let you know what's going on. In the hopes of soothing your soul a little bit, let me add that there has been no official announcement made by Blizzard. So this is still just speculation on the part of an analyst. Um, we will have to wait and see what happens. In other, even less pleasant Blizzard speculation. Wired has an article about microtransactions being a possibility in the World of Warcraft, and they even quote a couple people from Blizzard as saying that these are possibilities. The concept is this. Once WoW reaches that saturation part point and uh, has run its course, uh, they believe that it's possible that um, Blizzard could switch it away from the monthly subscription uh, to a free play uh, method or model. And then just charge you for stuff inside the game. Ugh. This makes me ill. I mean, what a horrible, horrible thought this is. You know, I want to smack the person who wrote this story for even suggesting such a thing. Talk about destroying a game. I, I honestly hope that this is just a horrible idea that never gets implemented. You know, 15 bucks a month is not a terrible expense. But just wait and see what happens if something like this gets implemented and you have to purchase all the little stuff that you want in-game. I mean, your bill's going to skyrocket. Oh, you want that new mount? Well, that's 10 bucks, and it's yours, you know? Um, that's just the last thing that any game needs. My God, it's nickel and dime crap. It would destroy World of Warcraft plain and simple. All the things that you get through your achievements, through grinding, through instancing, you know, if they put all that stuff up for a flat purchase... It would just be ridiculous. I, it just, uh, uh, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. So, I don't think Blizzard is this stupid. I, I really don't. Um, despite the fact that a couple people were quoted as as mentioning this before, which just 
just really, really, I'm not happy about this. So I'm, I'm just going to cross my fingers and hope that this horrible, 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 horrible idea goes the way of the dodo and we never hear of it again. I guess the major bit of news on the sci-fi front this week was the loss of the sci-fi channel on Monday. Monday, July 6th, saw the last broadcast transmission of the 16-year-old sci-fi channel who, at midnight, sadly went silent. Not even waiting for the channel to have a proper burial, a new upstart channel called the Siffy Channel took its place. This new Siffy Channel promises that it will look nothing like the Sci-Fi Channel, and that it's going to bring more reality television crap to TVs around the world each and every week. Tongue planted firmly in cheek. Siffy launched on Tuesday with the switch from Sci-Fi Channel, and it was met with sneers of derision from everyone except the president of the network and the people he employs, none of whom want to be out of work in this economy, so they just say yes, sir. They quickly followed this launch with the series premiere of a new show called Warehouse 13, which I, I did actually end up watching, um, but I watched it on a different channel, which I thought was extremely amusing. I, I believe it was on that Universal HD Theater channel, but I did notice it was also on USA, so it could have been on there. Um, but I, that's where I watched it, um, because I forgot all about it completely. And I was kind of curious. Um, and and I found it very, very interesting that they were, you know, they showed it on the SIFI channel, and then immediately they had it on HD Theater and USA, um, which I, I, I felt was kind of odd. Anyway, <clears throat> the show itself, it, it wasn't fantastic. It You know, it wasn't Battlestar. Um, but it wasn't Flash Gordon either. So I, I like the actors involved. You've got Eddie McClintock, um, Joanne Kelly, who I last remember seeing as Bianca on the Dresden Files, Saul Rubinek, who's great, you know, he's he's been on a lot of genre stuff, and uh, CCH Pounder. Uh, all class acts, you know, all really know what they're doing and they're and they're worth watching, but I don't know if this show is worth watching yet. I don't know if it's if it's going to do well. You know, it's got some cool elements, um, but I don't. And, and I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, so I should probably keep my mouth shut. But I, I'm not sure if it has the legs to run yet or not. Uh, I, I'm reserving the right um, uh, to pass judgment until later. I want to wait and see and, and, and uh, check out what they do with the next couple of episodes. I know that two of my favorite people were involved in, in writing the pilot. You had Rockney S. O'Banion um, from Farscape. And then you had uh, Jane Espenson from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, both fantastic writers. Uh, but I don't believe either are still involved with the show. So, you know, it's that whole thing where they could write a, a really decent pilot and then other people come in and screw it, screw it up from that point on. I could be wrong. I'm not sure. Uh, I know for certain that Jane Espenson is no longer involved because she said so on her Twitter feed. So um, she's telling people, oh, thanks for, you know, complimenting me on that. You know, I'm not involved in that anymore. Um, so we'll just have to see what they come up with in the future and, 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 and uh, you know, what they end up doing to, to hold on to the audience. And on the Twitter front, um, sci-fi exec Craig Engler showed up this week. And he was trying to um, 
calm the fans and soothe the savage beasts. You know, a lot of fans have been upset by um, Sci-Fi flipping them to Bird <clears throat> with the decision to uh, bail on the name Sci-Fi Channel and become Siffy. I don't think he did a very good job of soothing the fans, uh, but I, <clears throat> I wanted to show you a couple of the questions and stuff that he did here, so... Question, um, this, you know, just random people uh, put posting on the Twitter feed, and they, they post questions and he answers. So, question, why do you insist on trying to pretend your demographic isn't what it is and pandering to people who will never watch you? Answer, demos vary greatly by show, so there is not a single demo that watches us. Many different kinds of people enjoy sci-fi, fantasy, etc. Question, help me understand. Name one new project you can do as Siffy that would not have felt right as sci-fi. Siffy is about catching up to where our programming mix is, not about changing it. Question. Your programming mix has poor spelling and grammar? That isn't catching up, Craig. That's dumbing down. <clears throat> Answer. Siffy is a made-up name, not a word. So it's spelled correctly as is, like we or Twitter. Okay. He gets points for the, the last comment, the last little zing. <clears throat> Look, I'm about as upset about this stupidity as anyone else. Uh, probably a little bit more. But there is apparently nothing that can be done to change their mind, except not to watch the channel. If you choose to do that, that is your right and your prerogative. And in the end, only a massive loss of viewership will make any sort of point with these people, and, and I'm not advocating that. Um, everyone has to make up their own minds as to what they're going to do and how they're going to respond. You know, And if, if everybody just stopped watching... Yeah, that would send a message to them, but they might also, you know, panic and just, um, because of the loss of revenue go under completely, and I don't think anybody wants that either. For myself, I I'm going to give up. I give. Uh, I'll continue to watch their stuff, but what I'm going to, you know, my own little snub to them is that I refuse to acknowledge the new brand. In this podcast, you've heard me say Siffy quite a bit. Um, and today you've heard me say it for the last time. So from this point on, whenever I reference that particular channel and their content, I'm going to say the channel formerly known as the Sci-Fi Channel. And that's it. That's you know that's my little um, bird being flipped back at them uh, because of their stupid decision and and because of them being you know idiots. So that's what I'm going to do. Enough said. I did have something in comic books that I wanted to talk about this week that kind of crosses over into sci-fi. Uh, Newsarama.com has a story about the new Doctor Who ongoing comic series from IDW Publishing. This is interesting for a few reasons. Number one, it means that there is some new original Doctor Who for us here in the States, above and beyond the specials we're getting, which you know are coming to us several months behind their original airings on BBC. So that's good. You know, new Doctor Who equals good. Number two, though the series is launching with a tale of the Tenth Doctor, which is, you know, of course, portrayed by Tennant, who arguably is probably the most popular Doctor at this point, um, doing it in a comic book really allows them 
to jump into any of the Doctor's timelines and tell us a story. So that that's really cool, and I, and I hope that eventually they do take that step and go there, because I think that could be a lot of fun, you know, to see a new Tom Baker story, a new Pertwee story, you know, hell, a new Hartnell story. I think that would be kind of awesome, so... Um, so there. The article has a nice interview with Tony Lee, who's writing the new series. Uh, and he's setting up the comic at, in this year, which is the lost year of Doctor Who, where we're only getting the specials and there's not like a big long series. That way he doesn't run into any weird <clears throat> continuity issues. And that's smart on his part, you know. Um, but I, I tell you what, this right here is the strongest pull I have felt in a long time to go into a comic book store. I have fought it <laughs> and fought it. Um, I fought it with the pull, you know, that I felt from uh, Buffy Season 8 and then Angel After the Fall. Because those were, were two very strong series and I was really, really um, interested to see what they were going to do in comic book. I ended up getting the graphic novels later. We'll talk about that at a different time. Um, but this book right here, you know, really makes me want to go in and get a Saver account again and, and uh, you know, start getting some comics. Anyway, there's a, there's a seven-page review online. I've linked it in the show notes. Um, and so you can see the artwork, which looks pretty good. Um, the writing seems to be clever in the pages that I've seen, so if it keeps that up, I think this could be a really nice addition to the Doctor Who universe. Um, so and next week, I think, is when it launches. If you're so inclined, you know, go down to your local comic book store and check it out. Okay, on to book news. And then, and towards the end, just a little bit about my own stuff. So, first up, something completely random. Ernest Hemingway, KGB spy. Okay, <laughs> this, this kind of tripped me out, which is why I felt the need to mention it here today. Um, a new publication called Spies, The Rise and Fall of the KGB in America has a bit in it about how Ernest Hemingway, the Pulitzer Prize winning American author, was actually a spy working for the KGB. This is according to the notes of former KGB officer Alexander uh, Vasily, who was a co-author of the book. And he was given access to Stalin-era intelligence archives in Moscow. And he found references to Ernest Hemingway as a KGB spy. Um, the KGB file on Hemingway said that he was a dilettante spy. And that he was recruited in 1941, given a cover name of Argo. And that he was, quote-unquote, very willing to help however he could. Uh, but that's pretty much it. Then he was dropped by the KGB after a few years because he failed really to provide them with anything useful. <clears throat> so this is kind of a trip. I, I, I honestly don't know what to say. It's such an odd thing and, and so incredibly random that I just had to mention it here. Um, take of it what you will, folks, but uh, Ernest Hemingway, failed KGB spy. Moving on to something else. Uh, I, I've got uh, some kind of cool stuff here for all the writers out there, and this is kind of... <clears throat> this is part my stuff, part other people's stuff, because I'm going to kind of meld them together. First up is five tips for developing your writer's voice. This comes from theadventurouswriter.com and is written by, and I'm hopefully not going to screw up this poor woman's name, but we'll see, Lori Pollock-Keenlin. I think that's about right. That's about as close as I'm going to get anyway. Uh, but I'm sure it appears, you know, 
in other forms in a number of different sources as well. I don't think that this is anything particularly new. It's just kind of nice and it caught my eye. So um, I felt it was worthy to mention here. Number one, follow your literary hunches. Taking risks when you write will help you find your voice and trust your hunches even when your hunches are wrong. Okay, so in context, what she's talking about here is how she uses euphemisms in her writing. Um, and she used a couple, and then she paused, wondering if the reader would get what she was alluding to or if she'd gone completely off book. She decided to let it go um, rather than change it to something you know more blunt. And in so doing, she took a risk. And then that risk paid off because her editor approved the passage and, and, and she was able to move forward and publish the book. I, I really get what she's saying here. I think she's spot on. You have to trust yourself when you're writing. <clears throat> Unless you are really, 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 really far out on a limb, uh, you have to trust that your readers are going to follow along with you and, and get it. So I'm on board with number one. Number two, learn the difference between good writing and voice. Learning and practicing the rules of good writing can free your voice. As you become proficient in the use of language, your style will emerge because you yourself will emerge. She's quoting there. Um, she's quoting Strunk and White's uh, In the Elements of Style, which I had to read, and I still have a copy somewhere. I, I, I want to say it was the seventh grade when we had to read that. It could have been the sixth. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, anyway, I, I think the only way to learn is to do. So you, you have to write to learn how to write effectively. This is the most basic point made in every book or article I have ever read on the subject of writing. And it is relevant to this point. Uh, the only way you are ever going to learn and become proficient in the use of language in the written word is to write prolifically. Write when the mood takes you, and when the mood can't be found in the same zip code that you're in, you still need to write. You just have to sit down and write. Write to write. And and the rest, it'll come eventually. Um... What was it uh, Wesley said on Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Oh, no. Preparation, preparation, preparation. It's one word three times. I was going to say right, right, right. Anyway, <clears throat> number three. Stop comparing yourself to other writers. Admire other writers' styles, but nurture your own. I get this. This is huge. I've tried in the past on purpose to write things that sounded like a particular author that I liked at the time. And it can work. You can mimic that voice, but it really isn't your voice. You have to found, find out for yourself what you sound like. And again, you're, you're only ever going to be able to do that if you write for the sake of writing. Your voice will come out. You know, I, I believe that mine has. It just took time to figure out what that voice was. I also think that from time to time you can still write <laughs> with an accent, if that makes sense, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I definitely think this is this is a good point and um, take it to heart. Number four, put envy to work. I, I'm uh, I'm not sure what she means here. Um, so I, I, I'm reading a little bit further into it. I'm going to quote her again. Uh, if you wrestle with the green-eyed monster from time to time. Learn how to harness that energy. Jealousy can work in your favor by showing you what you really want. I'm still not certain what it is exactly that she's trying to point out here. 
so I'm going to substitute envy for passion. I, I think you have to put your passion in your writing. And when you do that, your writing will be much, much better and more poignant, especially to the reader. So um, I'm not sure about the envy piece. So I'm, I'm substituting passion. Number five, picture one specific reader. A publishing house asked me to write a few sample chapters. They specifically asked me to make my writing more edgy and quirky. I tried, but it didn't fly. I was too focused on trying to impress the publishers with my great writer's voice and went. I hadn't learned the technique of picturing one specific reader, one that I'm not trying to impress and simply writing to her or him. Okay. I, I've never considered this before, so... I think that I personally worry too much about what people are going to say or think when they read my stuff. And uh, I, I, I know in my heart that that's a problem and that I have to get past it. And I work on that. Um, this idea of writing to a specific reader could solve that, that problem neatly. If you imagine the person you expect will be reading your novel, short story, fiction, whatever, uh, and you write to that person, you eliminate the fear and doubt that crops up in your mind. Suddenly, you're free because you know, or at least you think you know, um, that that person's reading you for a reason. You know, they, they picked it up because they're into fantasy or they're into sci-fi. So, you know, you don't really necessarily have to panic anymore over plot decisions or, or any of that kind of stuff. You're writing to that, that person. This right here, I think, has real potential. And I think that, you know, of all the points that she's made, this is the one that resonates the most with me. So I'm going to try this out moving forward with my own writing and, and see if that, you know, helps me with those little weird um, thoughts that pop into my head. Anyway, I hope I haven't lost anyone, um, but I have another writing piece that I want to talk about and another five tips. Gosh, go figure. And again, this is something that, you know, it applies to me because I'm deep into uh, editing my novel Sam Kane. So I wanted to share this and just dive in. This is from EditorUnleashed.com, which is a blog. And this is a piece written by Maria Schneider. And it's called Five Evergreen Editing Tips. When, and I'm quoting her now. When you, when you think your piece is finished, go back into your draft and do a final check for five common problems. Number one, run on sentences. Check for sentences that are more than three lines long or have more than three commas. Excellent, excellent excellent advice. Uh, I'm actually thinking about having these particular um, five tips up on a notepad or something while I'm editing so that you know, it's always there in the corner of the screen just to remind me that you know I need to check for this kind of stuff because she's absolutely right. I think run-on sentences um, happen. That should be a bumper sticker. Run-on sentences happen. Yours for $10.99. Number two, descriptive dialogue tags. The best dialogue tags are also the simplest. She's basically saying that if you have a character speaking dialogue, don't have a massive long bit of stuff after that. So in, in her view, a correct tag would be, quote, I don't understand any of this, comma, quote, he said. Uh, and an incorrect tag would be, quote, I don't understand any of this, comma, end quote. He said with a long and drawn out breath that reminded me of the garlic toast I had at the cafeteria yesterday. Yeah. So, another good point, and another thing that I probably need to watch out for. Number three, modifier abuse. 
Go back into your manuscript after you think it's finished and circle each adjective and adverb. Chances are good that you can cut many redundant modifiers and create a cleaner, more readable piece. The simple act of circling the modifiers will make you aware of the right words to cut. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have a friend who edited her novel not very long ago and had to do this because um, an editor who read it said, oh my god, <laughs> you, you end almost every word in L.Y., so you need to go back and check this. Uh, I'm willing to bet, however, that there's an easier way to do this than you know printing out and circling it. Um, you can probably highlight these in Word or something, or you know whatever word processor you use. Uh, I actually did look a little bit, and you can do a find word in Word. Just do a find, and you can search for any instances of L-Y, for example. Um, and that would at least cover the adverbs. Then you can highlight those words. It, eh, it's just a suggestion, you know, if you're going to go through and do this. Because I, I'm just trying to think of a way to do this without killing a bunch of trees, so... Um, definitely worth trying. Number four, all caps. When is it a good time to use all caps in your manuscript? Never. If you feel the need to provide a visual emphasis, choose italics instead. Better yet, rewrite the line and let your writing do the heavy lifting. Erp. I've done this. <laughs> um, I have had all caps in there. When someone is really, truly shouting their butts off, I have done all caps. Um... Maybe I need to go back through, I guess, and, and not do all caps. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen in any book from any author that I respect an incident of all caps. And honestly, I'm drawing a blank. Oh! I guess that's something I need to, to go back and work on. Um, number five, beginning paragraphs with the same word. This is a universal problem that annoys readers and editors alike. It most often happens with a main subject or character's name, or the letter I. Beginning paragraph after paragraph with the letter I is especially irritating. Okay, yeah, I, I get this. Uh, I, I actually do watch for this when I'm writing, and if I ever do two paragraphs with the same letter, I, I, I worry about it, and then I try to come up with something different. So, at least on this one, I think I'm on top of it. I don't know. How about you? Okay, that that really is all good stuff. Really good tips to keep in mind when you're writing and editing, or and, and or editing your writing, which which is what I'm doing right now. Uh, I'm inching along with my own editing efforts on Sam Kane. I, I've actually added words. <laughs> uh, I've added about five thousand words so far, give or take. Um, you know, as I find that I there's stuff that I'm just sitting there going, oh dear God, what did I do here? I need to flesh this out and, and, and make it better. Um, I've also cut some stuff that I realized was, was just stupid. So it, it's an ongoing process, and I can see it taking a few weeks to get done before I can actually send this out to the, the folks on my list to, to let them read it. So if you're on my short list of folks waiting impatiently to read Sam Kane, and you're wondering why I, have, why I haven't sent you a copy yet, now, now you know. Uh, I want to be, you know, I want to have it a, a little bit more polished before I send it out to you. So, so there. Uh, in related news to that, I am working on the Mayfair Codex in my spare time. This is the book within the book, and several of the main characters reference this book as the story moves along, and it, and it kind of helps them and provides them with some useful information. The Codex is essentially a family history. It's a journal. 
So it's written by different members of the Mayfair family throughout centuries. Um, and through that book, we see how magic has affected that family through time. We kind of get a sense of what was going on in the world of magic and that kind of stuff. So it, it's a good project. It's a worthwhile project. I had originally written several pieces, you know, specifically for the Kane novel, but now I'm kind of going back and I'm doing more journal entries from different people all throughout the history of the family um, because I can see myself releasing those as sort of a teaser, sort of a viral marketing kind of thing for the Kane novel. Um, you know, and kind of just drip little journal entries out there for people to, to read and kind of start to get interested in. So um, it's a good project. It's a worthwhile project. And I just want to get a few more of those journal entries under my belt, you know, before I start pushing them to the web. So it'll be a little while, but you will eventually see them there on the blog. So, okay. I have been talking a lot today, so it's probably time to wrap this thing up and call the podcast done. Episode four in the can. I want to thank you once again for coming along for the ride. I really do appreciate it. I'll see you again next week, though I won't really see you. You'll just hear me. In the meantime, don't don't forget to check out the blog, All Things From My Brain. That's over at theblog.thenewuniverse.com. And if you're so inclined, you can also follow me on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash atfmb, um, all things from my brain. I can be somewhat amusing and entertaining on a daily basis. You don't know. It could happen. I, I could be amusing. I could be entertaining. I guess you'll have to follow me to find out, won't you? Uh, things that interest me, interest me throughout the week usually get linked on my Twitter feed. So uh, if nothing else, that makes it worth it to come check me out. Again, twitter.com slash ATFMB. If you want to comment or ask me any questions or suggest anything cool that I should be paying attention to, please visit the blog.thenewuniverse.com. Comment on the episode notes. Um, email me at podcast at thenewuniverse.com. Uh, DM me on Twitter. You know, something to, to let me know that there's something out there I should be paying attention to. Uh, I'll cover, you know, any questions or comments at some point, um, I'm sure, here. So, uh, worthwhile. Worthwhile endeavor. Take a leap. Hope you have a good week, and until then, have a great one.